Welcome to We Built This Brand. I'm your host, as always, Chris Hill. And on this episode, I'm talking with Smart Sites founder Alex Mellon. Alex is an award winning entrepreneur, a keynote speaker, and a best selling author. And today we're talking about his career journey, what inspired him to start Smart Sites along with his brother. And we also get into the challenging process of creating a personal brand that expands outside of your business. Now, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will too. So, with that said, let's get into it. Welcome to We Built This Brand. I'm your host, Chris Hill, and uh, with me today is Alex Mellon. Alex, thank you for joining me. Yep, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you today. We're here today to talk to you about the brands that you've built, your personal brand, as well as building smart sites and everything that that company has turned into. It's it's a fascinating story, and you've taken this business quite a way. So I would just love to dive into that and talk to you more about how all this got started and and just kind of go from there. So as we look at the business that you're in today, tell me a little bit more about what smart sites yeah, is. What is it today? Question. So smart sites is a full service digital uh, marketing company. So that means is uh, we do almost everything digital. So we, we make the websites, SEO, pay-per-click, social media, everything that comes with establishing uh, online presence, uh, typically for a business and then marketing it, right? Yeah, it's, it's certainly come a long way. I, I always I always have to redo the math because it gets more and more years since we started. We started in 2011. So it's now, jeez, uh, uh, 11 years. Started it with my younger brother, kind of bringing together a lot of different competencies and a lot of really smart people to really offer the best-in-class solution for small, medium-sized businesses. So my background before that uh, was uh, I had a couple other startups. I was involved in uh, a lot of tech startup stuff in the 90s. So I have a lot of background coming from that. But right before Smart Sites, I was at Publicis for three years, managing digital for uh, Samsung and then for Walmart. And I saw a lot of really, really cool things being done there. And this is, I don't know, so started 11 years ago and three years before that. So (laughs) rough rough math there is 15 years ago. So, I mean, digital is already really important, right? But not to the level it is now. Uh, but even then, seeing the kind of uh, solutions that were available to enterprise clients was really mind-blowing to me. There's a lot of really, really cool audience targeting and a lot of cool stuff being done that's um, more common now, but back then was really not. Um, and the idea with smart sites, at least for me, was to bring those kind of solutions to small, medium-sized businesses who didn't really have access to that and didn't really have the ability to hire companies like Publicis and such. Um, so that's how we started. Um, we're now we're now 400 employees. Um, we double in size every 18 months in starting. So uh, 18 months ago, we had 218 months. We'll have 800. So it's always a challenge. It's not always. There's a lot of challenges, right? But the 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 main challenge is uh, to keep providing excellent services that are good for our clients, right? We have uh, one of the best, if not the best, reputations in the agency space. If you search smart sites reviews or something like that, we have almost all five star reviews, which, as you can imagine, is not easy to come by in in any in any industry. Um, and then the challenge is to to keep scaling, right? To be able to uh, not only provide things as they are now, but to be able to provide it at a bigger scale and uh, obviously keep all our employees happy. And that, that that's a big part of the scaling component too, um, to be able to, by, by scaling, it's not just scaling, oh, we want to make more money, right? A, a lot of times as we grow, we actually make less money. But the, the big thing with scaling is that it creates opportunities for employees. So if you're 
you're a company with 400 employees or even four employees, right? And you say, I, I, I like where I am. I'm going to stay in this, in this spot. And let's, let's, let's say 10 employees, right? Those 10 employees will never have an opportunity to do anything new or to advance their career or anything, right? It's, it's like those, uh, you have like law firms with like four or five partners, right? And the only way you become a partner is if one of the existing ones like pass away, right? It becomes like one of those situations where there's no advancement. Right? So, uh, one of the big reasons to continue to grow, to grow and scale and all that is, is of course, uh, for our employees. And we j- just like we care about our customers, we really care about our employees because at the end of the day, uh, we're not Ford or, or GM. We don't produce anything, right? Our, our, uh, our product is, uh, the service our employees provide. So that's, uh, that's, that's the background of smart sites. So uh, we, we are hoping to continue, uh, what we've done in the last 11 years for at least another 11 years. Yeah. That's, that is so cool. So you say you started it to give small, medium businesses access to technology services that they normally wouldn't have access to. Like what inspired you to go this route? I noticed in your background, as I was looking you up on LinkedIn and checking out your history, it looks like, um, you did, like you mentioned, you spent some time in the corporate world. Did that inspire you to go, Hey, other people should have this too. Was it an itch? I know, um, let's even take a step back a little bit further and look at your, um, talk about where you got started. Um, cause you got started young if, if I remember correctly. So I, I started my first company T35 hosting in 1997. So that predates Google and almost any other tech startup that exists today. Right. Um, that was the web hosting day. So the idea with T35 hosting, and it's a similar theme as, as smart sites, as you'll notice, but the idea with T35 hosting was to, to be able to give people the ability to have a page on the internet instantly and free which sounds like a no-brainer now, but in 95, 96, 97, it just wasn't the case, right? If you wanted to have a website in the early, mid-90s, you would call up probably your internet service provider, uh, I don't know, Bell Atlantic in the East Coast at the time, which now is kind of Verizon, but uh, call up one of the Baby Bell uh, legacy internet phone service providers, right? Tell me you want a website. It'll probably cost you, I don't know, 50, 100 grand, They'll tell you they'll put something up on the internet in three to six months, right? That that was the process, and uh, it was very prohibitive. Um, that gave birth to not only the hosting industry but the free hosting industry. So for those who have been around um, long enough, that was the time of I don't know GeoCities, Hypermark, Tripod, um, all those companies that don't exist anymore. Yahoo wound up buying GeoCities for a billion dollars, I think, right? And then Yahoo itself was sold for a fraction of that. So there, there's there's a lot of, uh, it was, I don't know, it was, back then it was like the wild, wild west. There was a lot, of, a lot of crazy things happening. But yeah, that's where I started off. And uh, even then the idea was to be able to give uh, people, businesses, everyone, uh, the ability to really be found online and to have a presence online. And my idea at the time, at the very least, was was so it could be done cheaply and, and for free, but originally for free and, and instantly. So that's, that's, that's where I've come from. Since then, I've started uh, a lot of companies, a lot of websites. I'm on the board for a lot of companies. I've uh, helped oversee a lot of brands and companies being built. So starting smart sites, it was both the corporate uh, exposure to really enterprise-grade solutions, uh, but more so my continual really desire to, to have everyone be able to have a presence online or build build a presence correctly, right? It's and having built many of my own websites, many of my own businesses, it's not easy, right? It's not easy. And and usually if you think about small, medium-sized businesses, 
the ones that are successful are successful because they're really good at that one thing they do in their industry, right? Even if you go to like the one-man shops, like the plumbers, roofers, whatever, the ones that are successful, how's that roofer so successful? He gets so much business. Well, he's really good at roofs, right? Um, should that roofer be spending his nights, his or her nights, uh, learning how to build websites and, and SEO and pay-per-click and both of those like changing uh, very quickly, right? No, the, 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 the value add of a small, medium-sized business is to really focus on the service they provide that they're good at. And it was always very strange and frustrating to me that there was really not a lot of solutions for uh, those kind of people to build a website, do marketing. You, of course, have like the GoDaddy website builders, the Wix, right? But I don't think anyone is going to tell you that that's a good solution, especially for a, like maybe one person business, right? But if you're a growing business and have aspirations to grow, even on the SEO side, you're not going to get very far with a one page GoDaddy website builder. Yeah. I can, I can identify with that. <laughs> and there's, you know what, there's not a lot of uh, companies that certainly there, let me rephrase that. There are a lot of companies that existed that did that. Uh, most of them did not do it well. Uh, the industry is starting to consolidate a little bit now, but still there's no like one go-to brand or solution for like a full digital service. There, there's some, and there's, they're starting to become bigger players. But if you, if you go back, I don't know, 15 years or when we started 11 years ago, who would be making a website for a small business? I don't know. Uh, most of the time it'd be like your friend's cousin's girlfriend, right? Like, oh, like um, my, my son in, is in high school and his girlfriend's really good at making websites. So she's going to do it. Um, or you I've know, been the friend's girl's girlfriend's <laughs> husband, whatever, by the way. So... Yes, <laughs> which is which is uh, doesn't mean necessarily be a bad website, right? But it's just not not enterprise right. grade or whatever. Exactly. It's not. It's That's not, a whole it, different set of structures and things you have correct. to build out. And, and, and then, systems. by the way, I, I I don't envy you being in that position because whoever <laughs> builds a website is then responsible for the website. I don't know if you've been in those situations, but when you need something changed, when the website breaks, when the website gets hacked, that's going to be still the same person, right? Yeah, well, thankfully, I've I've managed to dodge that bullet and throw it off to somebody else or recommend yes. somebody that I know. Yes. But yeah, I've definitely been. Hey, Chris can do this. <laughs> no, <laughs> right, and it's um, and then it gets even worse. Usually, that person who builds it, even if they do a good job, let's say they're a very skilled website developer, they'll build a website. Is that website developer also going to be good at SEO, pay per click, social media, and everything else on the marketing side? Absolutely not. I. I've I've yet to meet a person that has all those competencies because those uh, competence competencies are so different, right? You're not going to be a very good programmer and very good graphic designer. Usually, it's like different sides of the brain, right? And quite often, what I run into is the other side of the coin, which is you're asking one person to do this. If they disappear, if they find another job, if they leave the state, whatever, like you're stuck with whatever they built, and if it was custom programmed, you're stuck with all of that. There's nothing you can do to fix it. Yeah. So we handle a lot of those. We have, a, we handle a lot of those and there's so many issues that come with it. A lot of times those people who build it wound up buying the domain. So you don't own your own domain. Step one, that is terrible. Uh, number two, they wind up putting on their own web hosting that they own. So now you don't have access to your website and let, let's not even consider the malicious cases where there certainly is tons, but yes, that person disappears. I don't know, like it gets run over by a bus. Now you don't have your own domain, you don't have your own website, right? And we've we've had, I can't say Fortune 500 companies, but we've certainly had Fortune 5,000 companies 
in that situation when they, where they employ churn, whatever it is, they, they, they arrive at a place where they don't own anything and don't own their domain and have access, don't have access to anything. So, yeah, so all, everything we do kind of stems from solving those issues. Even when we build websites or we, we build Google ads accounts or whatever it is, uh, clients always own everything. Uh, we specifically tell funny clients are like, why don't you register domain, the domain? It's going to be, it'll be easier for me not to do it. We're like, absolutely not. Right. And not, not like it doesn't hurt us to do it. Right. It's just that I, I don't want to own another business's property. Right. There's a lot of, uh, of these, uh, I guess, undertones in, in the internet space over the last 10, 15, 20 years that, We've been slowly trying to solve. Well, it's good to hear you do that because like we, we have a similar philosophy in our business because we've seen exactly what you described happen where, where it, people just disappear. And all of a sudden it's like, well, how do I get access to this? And you don't want to be on the receiving end of those angry phone calls after the fact. You'd rather just have it to hand off and have it to make it easy on people to move on. So, yeah, that's that's really neat. So that I mean, it sounds like you're solving a lot of problems for those small businesses that would otherwise have those issues and those challenges. So that's that's great. Um, so you you get out of the corporate world, you come into starting smart sites. What was your first customer? Uh, so we were very fortunate with smart sites. So when we started smart sites, my brother at the time, uh, well, my brother at the time for, forced me into it. I actually uh, I switched a lot of jobs between companies I founded, corporate jobs, professions. I worked, I don't know, I worked in uh, investment banking. I worked as an actuary. I worked in corporate finance. I was, I was, I, I was trying every, everything out. And uh, my job at MediaVest, which is a division of publicists, I really, really enjoyed. And uh, that was the only job I've ever stayed at. I was there almost three years right before, right before starting Smart Sites. Uh, my younger brother at the time was uh, kind of convincing me to to leave and start a company like Smart Sites. Uh, so at the time, he he ran Backlink Build, which was one of the first SEO companies. So it was it was the days of SEO where it was dominated by Black Hat SEO. If if, if you're familiar with that term, big companies would hire Backlink Build and my brother to get them to rank very well on Google. And uh, if shit went down. They would say, we have no idea what they were doing. That was the agency. And there was a lot of very big publicized cases like that. I, I forget which department store. I think it was Macy's. But if you, if, you look, if, you look or if you Google around later, I'm sure you could find it. But Macy's did something like that. And uh, Google blacklisted them, like delisted them from, from Google. And they came out publicly and they were like, we, we didn't do it. It was this agency that did it. And Google's like, oh, okay, and put them back. And still cost them millions of dollars. But that was, that was uh, so... When my when my brother's running backlink build, those were the those were uh, the years of where Black Hat SEO was very prominent. It was it was uh, as backlink build says in the name. It, a lot of it was link building related. So you would there would be we have all these link farms. If if you were around using uh, the websites and internet back then, those were the times where you'd scroll to the bottom of the website and be like random text, the same color as the background, so you couldn't see the text. But Google, what's right? Like there would be like keyword stuffing into into the footers of websites. So it was it was that kind of stuff. So he, he was doing very well with that in college, and he was like, "Oh, we got to start something as soon as possible because now is like that. Now is the time." And I was like, "I don't know. I really like it here at, at Publicis." And he was like, "I'm gonna." He was at Cornell. He's like, "I'm gonna graduate Cornell a year early." And we're going to start. I'm like, all right, if you're great. And this was like, he's already starting his, his, uh, his third year in Cornell. I'm like, if you're going to do two years in one and graduate early, I guess that's fine. So he wound up doing that. And then we started, uh, we combined 
his backlink build business with with the hosting and a couple other things I was doing and started smart sites. We didn't even call it smart sites at the time. It was, uh, it was Mellon LLC. So we used our last name, both, both have the same last name. So that was, that was easy enough. Um, he, he had a bunch of really, really smart kids from Cornell that came over with us and, and that's, that's how we started it. But we were fortunate enough that we already kind of came with some customers from his backlink build business. Uh, I had some for my hosting business. Of course, it was the, the new company created was providing a couple of different services, but we didn't have to like completely start from zero. So we were, we were fortunate in that regard. And, uh, we had, we had the expertise to, to really be able to attract customers. So well, we were profitable since day one and, and always have been. So we not, not all businesses are, are that fortunate, right? A lot of people have to take on uh, investors, equity, all of that. So we were fortunate in that regard, but we also, it took us a little while to really zero in on our core competencies. And I always, when I talk to at, at conferences and at entrepreneurial events and to businesses, I always stress the importance of that. Um, what I mean by that is, so as, as a newly formed Mellon LLC company, we were good at a lot of things. We could make websites, SEO, pay-per-click, everything in between, right? Social media was just coming out that, that we were doing really, really cool things with, but we really didn't have a good grasp on our value add. So what do I mean by that? Uh, we made websites really cheaply. So we, uh, I don't know, uh, I think we, we made full, full custom-made websites for a thousand bucks. Uh, at the end of the day, and, and prices were a little bit different then, but it was, yes. Yeah, so at the end of the day, we made almost nothing, right? Our profit margin was like five to 10%. Clients were not happy because it wasn't a good product because the, they were like, can you QA our entire website? No, we can't. We're already losing money on it. The client's not happy, right? Um, we're not happy. We're, we're not making money. Uh, employees are very frustrated because they have a lot of extra work and they're not being rewarded for it and all that. So from that regard, it took us a little while to figure out uh, the exact products we want to offer and the price point and where it made sense for everyone. And then we also kind of threw darts in a lot of different directions. We were really good at marketing. Uh, so we were like, why don't we start our own company to market, right? So we started uh, um, e-commerce brand and e-commerce was just, I don't want to say coming out, but just becoming more prominent at the time. We started a outdoor gear brand and literally bought the domain outdoorgear.net and started running a e-commerce store because we were good at marketing and we assumed we're, if we're good at marketing, right? Like we're doing it for this other company and making them tons of money. Why can't we do it? Right. So we were like throwing darts all over the place. Um, and we actually did make money with made revenue with it, but the amount of headaches that came with that, there was all like all these things that I would never think of. So we now had to deal with shipping items, right? Some would drop ship, some would not. We had to store inventory. We had to deal with returns. We had to deal with customer complaints. So all of a sudden, like a marketing company where we have very skilled people at web development and marketing, they're taking customer service phone call with this lady from like Atlanta was like, I bought an extra, extra large shirt, but it's not fitting me. It's clearly, even though it says extra, extra large on the label, I swear it's not, I'm sending it back. Uh, we had another lady that bought uh, gloves that claimed there was glass inside of the glove that cut her hand. So she's like, I want 10 grand or I'm suing. So it was like this kind of like, I'm like, holy shit, we threw the dart in the wrong place. So there, there are certainly a lot of, uh, a lot of things that we could do well, uh, but we had to really figure out our, our, our real value add. Like our value add was not handling customer service and shipping, even though we could do it, right? That wasn't, that wasn't our core competency. So we kind of 
trim things down. We were doing some social media stuff at the time, which proved to be a little bit controversial. This again, when social media stuff was just coming out, but we had a lot of clients who wanted to have more likes on Facebook and surprisingly, a lot of political clients. So we were selling likes, we were selling Facebook likes, which now sounds negative, but if you search my name and Facebook likes, you'll, you'll see the, the PR that came out of that. Uh, so we kind of trimmed that back down. We stopped, we stopped doing that service altogether. We do social media now, but for a couple of years, we really trimmed down to our core, core basics. And what is our vet? Where do we provide the most value? Do we provide the most value selling Facebook likes to politicians who want to make themselves seem more prominent than they are? No, that is not a core service that we want. We could do it, but it's not. Do we want to be an e-commerce company selling our own outdoor gear products? We could do it. We could be successful at it, but no, that's, that's not what our core value add is. So it took us a little while to really trim it all down. And then even things like, so yes, we could make your website, right? Is, is our, is our, is our value really making you that website and here's your website. We're done. Uh, it turned out to be, no, it turned out to be the, the, the best value we provide is when we become a really a digital partner to a small business. So we will make you the website, we'll maintain it, we'll do SEO, pay-per-click, you want a logo design, we'll design your logo. We really, our value add is being your digital partner and we could take care of anything on the digital side that you need us to take care of. Not just here, we made you a website, see you later, someone else has to maintain it. So, but it took us a little bit to really get to that and 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 uh, polish it off and, and figure that out. And only after that, that we start planning growing and everything else, right? So uh, for, for entrepreneurs, I always uh, give them this, that story because I, I think it's common and I think it's okay to throw a couple darts in a couple different directions because it's a very good learning opportunities. You, you got to test the waters. I mean, we, we've done that in, in Hummel Pod and, you know, tried different things that work. Live streaming during the pandemic was something we dipped our toes into and may not have had the best results with because live streaming is one of the hardest things you can do. That was interesting, by the way. So during the pandemic, I wonder, did you wind up? So I'll tell you my, my background to it. And then, then you could tell me uh, if, if you were involved with any of it. So, um, and this is a good segue actually to the next topic, but during, uh, so I was doing a lot of uh, public speaking right before the pandemic started. And during the pandemic, everything, all the conferences, everything I was scheduled to obviously went virtual. Well, not all, I actually did fly through a couple. Uh, many became virtual. And I remember in the beginning, it was actually a lot of excitement about it. A lot more people attended. So there would be people who couldn't physically fly over, didn't fit their schedule, didn't fit their budget. Uh, or the company would send one person. Now the whole company could watch. So there was a lot of excitement about the live conferences, live streaming, all of that maybe for like six, nine months. And then, and then it's, I, I, it just completely dropped off. And it just, uh, I, I remember I was even excited about it. I'm like, wow, usually I speak to like a thousand people. Now I could literally speak to 10,000 people. Uh, but it's people stopped joining. And then I remember, I, I don't remember which moment it happened in, but there was definitely a moment where it became weird. I remember, I, I have a specific, I, I'm not going to name the conference, but I have a specific conference. I remember joining. Uh, and the speech speech went okay, although there it was always weird speaking and not even knowing if people are there. Listen, like like I'd still be like, is this working? Can, can someone tell me that? So that was weird. But I remember there was a specific moment where I joined the the uh, the happy hour. So the conferences had to have digital happy hour. So for the happy hour, everyone joined. So it'd be like five thousand faces on Zoom. Everyone joined, and then they had some like European DJ playing like techno music. 
and everyone's just sitting there drinking their own beer in their own like room like you could see people's picture like in their bedroom and i'm like man somewhere all of this went really really wrong uh, we were definitely there for that on a, on a multiple levels i've i'm um and locally i'm the current president of our american marketing association chapter and this is my second time my first time was during the pandemic so we dealt with all that then and we had to deal with okay how do we get community together and then <clears throat> beyond that in our business it was clients doing exactly what you were doing hey i'm going to a public speaking event i need to be able to present a lot of times we did it pre-recorded stuff and we still do stuff like that today but like live streaming in and of itself is just a challenge because of exactly what you said is is it on are people listening is the stream going out right and even um i've got a i got a colleague of ours works for another company that we work with that has ptsd from his experience with live streaming and i won't say where he worked but he worked at a very very large firm in it so um so like it's it's just insane how difficult that time was for that era but yeah, you, you learn, okay, we're not doing that again. We, you know, somebody got mad at us or and it wasn't even our fault. It's just a matter of we chose to do this thing that we didn't realize all the challenges and issues that would come about of it. And so I, I totally get throwing the dart at things and figuring that stuff out. That's yeah. Very, very relatable to building a brand, building a business. So, yeah. So, so once you, once you narrowed down, once you niche down, I'm sure that was a little scary too. Cause you're like, I'm giving, getting rid of revenue. I'm getting rid of risk. I'm, t I'm taking on more risk by making it more focused. So when did you realize you were having success and that things were starting to grow to where, frankly, to where you are today? Oh, wow. It took a while. Uh, for, uh, for sure. When we increased significantly our website prices, it was a huge risk. Um, and there's certainly still companies, mostly outsourced, but there's still companies where you could go get a website done for a thousand dollars. Right. So you have to be confident in your product and price point. Because you will still have clients where you quote them the 10,000 and they're like, I was expecting 1,000. <laughs> um, so there's definitely, there's definitely, there's definitely a lot of risks. Uh, I still would encourage everyone to uh, experiment with, with things continually. We, we always experiment even with our business now that, that I guess we have the track, successful track record. We still set aside budget to experiment with, uh, with things, with new services, with new ideas. I think that's that's always super super important for almost every kind of business. But yeah, I, I think I think that's that's what it is. I think you have to experiment early. You have to be you have to be willing to take risks, right? If you talk about what makes a successful company successful entrepreneur, right? You have to be willing to take risks, which which might not always be easy. I think you have to be very agile. And I think if anything, COVID showed us that. That was the big word I used. Um, I got asked to speak at a lot of events during the COVID years and really give companies and entire industries guidance on how, how do we come out of this? What do we do? Um, I think agility, uh, being agile was, was a huge, huge one. And just, just as a quick example, I do a lot in the automotive space. A lot of car dealerships were not allowed to be open. In New York, in New York City, they closed. You, you weren't allowed to be open. They're like, how do we sell cars, right? So they had to rethink their entire business model. And if you think about it, who were the ones that came out of it better than they went than going in? A it was companies who did take the risk and continued marketing. A lot of dealerships that stopped all their marketing, stopped everything. Um, they lost their 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 funnel, right? Because buying a car is a very very long funnel, and a, a lot of them went out of business actually. So the ones that were like, and we ourselves, by the way, we during COVID, we we actually we gave we gave everyone bonuses to set up home offices. We actually hired instead of fired. And we kept investing in our marketing, even though it was losing money because it was bringing the funnel and giving our salespeople 
work and everything. So you have to be willing to take the risks, right? Uh, even when it doesn't make sense. Uh, and uh, being agile, back to a car, car example, the dealerships that were successful were the ones that realized, shit, now instead of selling cars in person, our salespeople have to be willing to uh, do the sale on the phone, do the sale over text, do it over live chat, or do it in person, right? Everyone during COVID had different comfortable comfort levels. If the client does want to come in and you're allowed to be open, that that's that works, right? If if the if the client wants to talk about their car lease over the phone, that's fine too. If you think about the car business, if you, pre-COVID, if you wanted to buy a car and you called up a dealership and you said, let's talk about the numbers over the phone, I promise you, not a single dealer would do it. They, they wanted to get you in 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 the dealership, right? Uh, now, all of a sudden, you have to talk about finances and deals over phone calls, over text, right? Over live chat on your website. Uh, you have to be really agile and flexible. And those businesses that were came out much better uh, than, than than they did coming in. So those, I think those are the big traits. And I mean, that's that's definitely, definitely a challenge. And I think that kind of segues into the next topic, which is your personal brand. I noticed behind you, you've got Automotive Research Marketing, the book that you wrote. So before we get into the book, I'd like to know, like, where did the personal branding side of things start for you? Because again, like you were young, I noticed you got on a Forbes list at a young age. And so did you realize it then? Were you just kind of like, hey, cool, I got in Forbes. Like, how did that how did that start? So I'll tell you. So I, I was being involved in tech space very early. I was lucky enough to have a lot of opportunities to do speaking and what I would now call thought leadership. But I was very, very bad at it. I was I was one of those kids that high school, college, um, I avoided presenting altogether. Uh, I was and, and there's there's plenty of people like that. I just I. I I was like, I'll do all the work. You guys presented. And if I had to, I would take a failing grade and make it up on the test. Right. I'd be like, I'm not, I'm not present. So you, you'd be, you'd think that the, the U S school system would force me to present at one point or another, but I somehow managed all of high school and all of college without doing, I just, I just wasn't comfortable. So I did, I did present once at a conference, web hosting conference when I was probably like 16 or 17. And that was my first and last uh, presentation for for a very very long time, and then maybe five six years ago, I just decided that it was very important for personal development, right? To the skill set of public speaking and be able to articulate your thought and communicate with people in that way was super super important for my role in the business. And I was fortunate enough that I still get invited to to speak at a lot of events. So it was just as simple as me finally forcing myself to accept it. So that, that so the the personal brand stuff really came around from that. And once I started doing more and more of that, I, I can't say I really focus significantly on like I don't wake up in the morning like what can I do to improve my personal brand, right? But uh, uh, I am very focused on thought leadership, which I think is important on a lot of levels. Uh, on a personal level, just going to these conferences and, and speaking at them really helps me stay up to date with what everyone else is doing and uh, meet some really, really cool people that, that are doing something similar. Number two, it definitely helps our company uh, because more and more people know about it as they know about me, they know about their company. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of benefits. And, and again, me personally, I just don't see it as much of personal brand development uh, as much as focusing on thought leadership and personal development, right? Uh, but certainly I've had tons of companies reach out to me and they're like, wow, you have a good personal brand. You should work on it more. You could hire us to do PR and this and that. And all the stuff I've been in, like the Forbes list and everything else has been like just them reaching out to me. I've never 
I've never actively, I guess, hired someone to work on my personal brand, but I, I have no issues with a lot of people who do. I think for everyone has has uh, different priorities. But yeah, and I, I, the, the book was actually interestingly, so uh, along with public speaking, writing was by far the my worst subject in school. Uh, so it was another one of those personal development things where I, I, um, I thought it would be really important to uh, and by the way, this is not even staged. I have a conference in a couple of days. I'm getting these. <laughs> it was it was perfect. I thought it was intentional. Yeah, it worked out. Yeah, comes out here. Um, I, <laughs> Just I got leave these, it in frame. It's great. I, I got these ready for a conference I'm speaking at in a couple of days. Automotive conference. Um, so yeah, I spoke a lot. I speak a lot in the automotive space. I'm just a big automotive enthusiast. So I got more involved in that. Um, and I was like, it'd be important to try to write a book. And, you know, it's one of those things that, and uh, the, the reason I'll, I'll share my story is because it, hopefully it's impactful for other people. It's one of those things that I know a lot of people want to do. And as I've done for others who have done public speaking, when I do public speaking and I talk to other successful public speakers, I ask them like, what helped with your public speaking career it's always write a book that's always like the number one thing it's it doesn't even have to be a good book uh, it's like literally like i wrote a book being a published author and then being a best-selling published uh, best-selling author are just very very powerful things in the thought leadership space um so it was it was definitely always on my mind um but it it, it took a while for first of all as as a business owner as any other business owner i have so much on my plate that putting together time to write a book is is very hard to because you need to like concentrate and um but finally what helped me is i started telling people i'm gonna do it so i would i would tell clients i would tell i would tell uh i would tell uh colleagues at at conferences i was like i'm i'm gonna i'm finally gonna i'm gonna write this book and i already have the title and I think once you start telling people, you kind of hold yourself accountable to it. I think that's, that's for me, was a very important step to finally push myself to do it. And then I forget who, but someone, and I, I think I, I spoke to a couple of book publishers. I think it was one of the book publishers that reached out to me. And I think it was, to be honest, I think it was a automated spam email. It wasn't like a personal email, but it was, the email was like uh, November, was it November? I think it was the email was like November is uh, write a book month or a book authors month or something like that, um, and I, I remember looking at that email like I'm like you're right this if, if if there's ever a sign to do it this is it so I did it uh, I did I, I set aside one hour a day for, in, during the month of November and I wrote it in I think like 30 hours but I'm a quick typer and you could hear I talk quick I think quick so it wasn't. Uh, the, the, the actually a big struggle for me was actually going through publishing. I, and, and again, this is just like public speaking. It's all like a learning experience for me. And like I, I learn as I go along. So the, the book, the, surprisingly, getting it published took a lot more work and time than actually writing it. There's a lot of uh, things that I, I, you, you, if you haven't written, written a book, you couldn't even fathom the issues I had. Like I had a screenshot of Google that a publishing company refused to use because they thought Google would sue them, like things like that. So it took, took a while, but yeah, I'm, I'm and it's funny. The, the other big issue, obviously, with writing books, especially in, in our space, is everything's very fast moving, right? I wrote it last November, so I wrote it almost a year ago. It got published in April, and I think like 20% of it now needs to be updated. <laughs> Well, hey, you got new revisions that can come out, new things to sell people, right? Yeah, and new, new things to learn. I actually reached out to our company. I, I, I'm like, how do revisions even work? So I'm waiting to hear back. But um, I think it's super important for people, even if you're going to self-publish or whatever it is, uh, maybe even make sense before doing But Like for me, I did public speaking first. But uh, what, what really 
okay, so what, what uh, the big benefits I got out of writing this before even publishing it, um, it helped me put together my thoughts, which really helped uh, for public speaking. Um, it helped me really uh, give extra thought to uh, the services we offer, because a lot of this describes the way we do business. So as I'm physically writing it down in a 200 page book, um, it really gives me an opportunity to be like, this is what we do. And then I'm like, why are we doing it this way? Right. Maybe there's opportunities to do it differently, do it better. Um, it let me do, it gave me the opportunity to do a lot of research about how other people are doing things because as, as I'm writing how we're doing it, I'm like, is this the best way to do it? Or are people doing it different ways? Because the book itself is very neutral. It doesn't sell anything. It's really like a neutral perspective to SEO and pay-per-click. So I think it was super, super useful. I think for people who don't, don't even want to publish it, just writing your thoughts down in a book like this is, is super helpful. And I, I'd encourage other people to do it as well. My, my idea was to do it for every industry because we work literally in, in every industry, but the, the publishing process was so drawn out and, and stressful for me that I, I took a, I took a break. Well, and on top of that, now you're realizing, Hey, I've got to update 20% of this already. If I had to do that for every industry, that'd be my full-time job. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Which may that's, not be a bad thing. That, yeah. That's, that's what it becomes. And if you actually look at a lot of authors who have multiple books out that do revisions, it's mostly ghost written. They, they have a company doing it because obviously it becomes a full-time job, but no, it was a very good experience. Um, has it helped with my public speaking? Probably not as much as I thought the, the conferences that are asking me to speak at are the ones I've spoken at. I'm sure it helps a little bit. Uh, but the whole process was super, super helpful. And I, I, wouldn't hesitate to recommend it for everyone. Uh, if you don't self-publish, if you go through a publishing company, uh, they either collect royalties or costs, I think like 15, 20 grand. So it's, it's uh, money, but it's not like huge amounts of money. If you work with a professional publisher, there's also packages where they make you a best-selling author. There's a lot of tips and tricks, like like anything else in life. There's a lot of, there's a lot of shortcuts I've, I've discovered that was not familiar to me at the time. And there's a lot of these silly things that I knew happened in the publishing industry, but until I did it, I, it, it didn't make sense. Like a lot of times there's like a new book coming out and it says like best-selling author already on it. Like, have you noticed that? Like, yeah. Well, or, or for example, there's a lot of best-selling author, right? There's yes more more than you would think there should be, Suspiciously right? Suspiciously so. S- suspicious and, and like <laughs> like 50% of the books coming out says best-selling author on it. So to be best-selling, uh, it depends where, right? You, best-selling Amazon, best-selling USA Today, and best-selling New York Times are the three tiers. Uh, they all require selling a certain amount of books in one week. So that's usually the marker, how many books you sell in a one-week period. I think for New York Times, it's something like 6,000, depending on the week. So if you... If it's a week where there's a lot of other big releases, it might be more, but let's, let's say 6,000. What you're able to do, first of all, there's, there's ways to prevent that, but in theory, you could buy 6,000 of your own books, right? They, they tried now, they've, they've, there's a better way to prevent that, but let, let's say that's not an option. The other big trick that, 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 that's used in the industry is pre-sales. So if you see book pre-sales, that's why there's so many of them, because uh, the pre-sale all counts towards week one. And you could have a pre-sale for as long as you want. So you could actually put on your cover best-selling author, knowing that you're going to have the pre-sale for as long as it takes to hit the best-selling author status. So there's, uh, there's, and the book publishers, of course, have a whole network of people that could buy your book, could leave you a review that they, they lean on. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's like, like with anything else, it's been a, it's been a learning experience. It's its own form of SEO. 
in a sense. Like you're, you're optimizing for the industry. You're optimizing for credibility in a sense. And you're trying to, trying to boost that. Very good word. So I think for, yeah, for credibility and brand building, I think it's super, super important. Absolutely. And I, I've seen that with other folks that we've worked with and other folks that I know. I mean, um, I don't know if you happen to know who Mark Schaefer is, but he's a Knoxville native, which is where I live. And he started here writing his own book, self-publishing his own book. And I remember when I was like, who is this guy? What is this book he's written? And today he's like a best-selling author, and done all this other stuff. And you know, he's, he's well-known in the marketing community. So it's, it's interesting to see, you know, how other folks approach it and how it helps them grow their own personal brand. And ultimately it helps your business too. I mean, getting back to smart sites, like this book is very focused on an industry that you all serve. So I would imagine that this also drives business to you just as a result of having written the book. I'm sure it does. Uh, has there been much that I directly tracked? Probably not, but the book's only been out six months. I think it's one of those things that, that people read it, keep us in mind, and then when they need us, they'll reach out. I started out with automotive just because I'm very familiar in the space and I speak at all the automotive conferences. Uh, but if you think about it, automotive is a very, very small, I don't, I don't want to say small industry, but people who 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 would be reading this book is a, is a very small data set. So what I mean by that is... Uh, I don't know, there's 13,000 to 16,000 franchise dealerships in the U.S. Let's say there's one person in each that'd be interested in this um, at some point in their lives. It's not even like, in, like right? they're not all interested in it right now, but let's say in general. So my market's, I don't know, 16,000 people, let's say. Uh, then you look at other industries, I don't know, let's say look, look, look at uh, lawyers. Um, I think there's a million law firms in the U.S., something like that. Let's say four partners per law firm. That's four million, right? Right off the bat, versus the sixteen thousand on the on the car thread. So yeah, it's it's not. Uh, but I purposely started with this because that's where I had the most expertise and just speaking at conferences uh, and speaking to automotive clients on a almost day to day. Um, I was very familiar with their pain points, so that's that's that that I felt the most comfortable writing about it. And and at the same time, I didn't want to go too general. I'm I'm sure you. you You've seen how many SEO books exist and I just like as, just as a general SEO book. I didn't want to be like one of the 10,000 SEO books. Um, and, and, and by the way, my, that's my suggestion to others as well. If anyone wants to write a book, I would I would start off with as focused as possible. I was about to say, yeah, that's that's kind of a blue ocean strategy of getting into that space where nobody else has written a book. And there's probably people searching, searching for that keyword, searching for that term, searching for that subject. And there's nothing on it. So. Man, it's it's been great talking to you. Last question we always ask, and it's always a little off topic, but I love hearing um, answers to it, is what brand do you admire the most right now? Man, what brand do I admire the most right now? I, I, I'm sure Apple comes up always as a very popular one just for all their branding and, and marketing. I, I just, uh, even though I'm not an Apple person, I, I don't use, I, I, I mean, Android, Samsung, I don't, I don't have a single Apple product that I use. But I, I think they're always very good in terms of not necessarily being first to market, but being correct to market. They bring the, the correct product to the correct market to, with the correct marketing and correct pricing almost every single time without fail. So being uh, someone who does something like that for a lot of our clients, um, I, I always think that's great that they're able to do that. Elon Musk, I, I, I follow. I think he's doing a lot of really, really cool things, even though he gets a lot of that press about a lot of them and uh, that's i know he's not a brand but the, 
whatever brands he starts uh, that he's personally overseeing, I think uh, ultimately are always doing something. At the very least, he's doing something innovative and he's taking risks. Um, so I, I would say the e- e- Elon brands for, for the risk taking, like even what he's doing with Twitter, right? I'm a big uh, user of Twitter, big fan of Twitter. Uh, I know Jack Dorsey from back in the day, who was the co-founder of Twitter. Uh, he's doing a lot of crazy stuff with Twitter. I think getting rid of the name itself was crazy, but he's taking risks, right? And I really, you really can't uh, take that for granted. Uh, I think he's taking a lot of risks that no one else would. Uh, if you didn't buy Twitter, there's no way Twitter would ever rebrand. Like even if they slowly lost customers and went out of business in 10 years, they would ride that sinking ship all the way down with never changing their name. Yeah, so not 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 a direct answer to for you, but I, I, I to summarize that, I would I would say Apple for for the way they're able to correctly market and create and time their products, and uh, Elon Musk and company for for really taking risks that no one else does. Yeah, I think those are good answers. Um, I was curious, being a car guy, if you would have like a, a car branded answer. I guess Tesla kind of uh, does it. I'm, I'm a big Porsche person. I have an electric. Oh, really? I have, I have an electric Porsche that looks like this. Oh man. <laughs> Oh man, is that the Panamera or what? What is their electric version of that? Taycan. Ty- oh, the Taycan. Oh wow. That's and awesome. I and I have it in this exact bright green. Oh man, exact, is that why you got that? I, yes, uh, one of my <laughs> one of my clients sent this to me actually. But oh nice. Now now I can't get rid of it because I have I have the mini version of it. You're committed. That's awesome. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah, I like. Um, yeah, I was just curious. I'm I, I like cars too, so I I tend to nerd out on that stuff. So yeah, yeah. No, I don't have a Taycan, but <laughs> you should get one. They're great. I drive at, I drive so little now. We close our office. So it's all, I, I enjoy it when I can, but it's mostly like uh, taking the kids to school and and my daughter hates it, but my younger daughter makes me like pull, drop her off, like further away from school. She's, she's like, why can't you have a white car? Like mom she doesn't like the bright cream car. Yeah. She's like so embarrassing. <laughs> my kids have the opposite reaction. Cause I, I drive, um, this isn't anything crazy, but I, I drive an Acura TL Type S. So, and it's in that really nice blue from, it's the 07 model. It's in that really nice blue, probably in my opinion, one of the best colors Acura's ever made. Um, but my daughter loves it and she's, she's only like two granted, but every time Not, we're taking them to school, young. she's too young to be embarrassed by it. Give it, give oh yeah, it a couple more years. Guaranteed. I, I don't doubt it. Um, but they, she begs to be in my car. She's like blue car, blue car, blue car every time we go. So that's, cute. that's, that's I, uh, I had, I had a, I think same, same when my kids were same. My my kids are now nine and ten, but when they were the same age, uh, I had a blue Audi S6 uh, C Pan nice. blue, which is very similar to the Acura color, and they kids also liked it. But now, now it's embarrassing. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's part part of being a parent. You're just going to embarrass yeah. them no matter what you do, even if you're the yeah. coolest dad in the world. So, gotta get a white car. <laughs> right. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on. Last, last question before we go. Um, where can people connect with you? How can people find you? How can people find more about smart sites? Yeah, great question. So uh, smart sites, if, if you Google it, you'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll get there. You'll find it. Uh, for me personally, it's alexmelon.com, A-L-E-X-M-E-L-E-N.com, or you could Google it and it'll come up as well. I have all my contact information there. So LinkedIn, I'm probably the most active on followed by Twitter, but I'm on all the, all those social networks. Uh, so definitely feel free to connect with me. If anyone has any questions about public speaking, writing books, starting companies, more than happy to uh, chat about it. Absolutely. Well, Alex, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks. You too.